Hello there, freaky friends. Welcome to episode 13 of the Bone Garden Podcast. If you listened to the show before, welcome back. If you're new here, hello. My name is Kate. I'm a lifelong true crime and paranormal enthusiast, and I'm on a journey to learn about all sorts of freaky, creepy stuff, except I'm not doing it alone anymore, you guys, because I recently did a collab, well, two collabs, with my best friend in the whole entire universe. And at one point, they decided to mention, hey, if you let me do the podcast with you for the rest of forever, I would do it. And it really didn't take a lot of time for me to think it over, come to a decision. Because realistically, there's nobody that I would rather do this show with. This particular person has been my rock through basically everything. And there is nobody else that I would rather travel through the spooky, ooky darkness and talk about true crime and cryptids and all that fun stuff with. So with that being said, I would like to formally, cordially, officially welcome the new co-host of the Bone Garden podcast, Pippin! Hi, it's me. I'm a little teary-eyed right now, so (laughs) give me one moment to compose myself. So while you're fixing your tears or sucking them back in your face. Get back in um, there. Yeah. Keep talking to them. Uh, I'll explain what's happening. So I realized that, yeah, doing this show is a lot of work. But it was also, looking back at my old stuff and listening to it, I didn't have nearly as much fun with the 10 episodes preceding our first collab as I did actually listening to Scared Mountain Inn and the Holiday Collab. And I mean, Pippin is Pippin, and they are tenacious, and they're so they're so into what they're into. Uh, and I figured, hey, you like to hyperfixate, and I like to hyperfixate, uh, but we do it in different ways, which I think is really fascinating. Like you'll mm-hmm. sit down, you'll do all of your notes in two days, and I'll get, get little like little bursts of like, okay, now I'm writing six pages, and then my brain's like, uh, let's go take a nap or like eat Taco Bell and cry. <laughs> But I, when I was editing the Scared collab and the Holiday collab, I haven't laughed that hard at <laughs> really anything that I've recorded solo. And so what we're going to do here for episode 13, and maybe episode 14, it really depends on like what we've got for notes, is Pippin is going to do their equivalent of a pilot episode where they picked out a topic. And all I really know is like, what the topic is, but I don't know the specifics. So this is going to be a Pippin-centric topic. And I'm really excited for it. I'm also very excited. Um, This particular topic is actually one that I didn't know anything about her ghost stories for a long time, but she was my favorite historical figure before even learning about all of that stuff. So I'm really excited to like share with you all of the information about her life, death, and then afterlife. Oh, sorry. No, my my cat ran in the background and it made me kind of like, whatever. Um, I got a little bit spooked because it is (laughs) almost 3 a.m. as we're recording right now. It's a dark and rainy night. Kind of spooky for me, not going to lie. But no, I think when we were uh, originally talking about Anne Boleyn, you just very vaguely mentioned her. And then Mm -hmm. we just happened across the Scarab Mountain Inn and we did that. Uh, research together and that's how that happened but 
no, I think <laughs> as soon as I mentioned, yeah, like I want you to be my co-host, like pick a topic. I knew in the depths of my colon that you were going to say Anne Boleyn. <laughs> the depths of my colon. I could feel it in my sphincter and I was like, they're gonna pick Anne Boleyn. <laughs> but I'm I'm super excited. Uh do you like want to like introduce I don't even have to be like, yeah, I'm gonna direct you. Um this is your fucking episode. So I'll kind of let you take it away. <laughs> All right. So before we actually get into the topic of Anne Boleyn, um, I just want to say hi, I'm Pippin. Um, I have been very into the spooky as well since I was a kid, but in a much different way than Kate. I'm not so much interested in learning about the spooky as I am in staying the fuck away from it, but it always seems to find me. So <laughs> it's going to be interesting seeing how we play off of each other in that regard. Her constantly seeking it out and me going, please, no. Well, the funny thing is that when we were recording Scared, I think I actually edited it out when I was talking about the the lady in the woods or the white lady. You'd mentioned afterwards, like after I finished that little that little blurb, you're like, I had to turn your volume all the way down because I couldn't <laughs> listen to you talk about the lady in white. <laughs> so it's funny because I I haven't had a lot of paranormal experiences, but I'm so incredibly fascinated by the paranormal. Whereas you've had, like, from what I understand, a ton of paranormal experiences, but you're fucking terrified and you don't want anything to do with it. (laughs) Yeah, and um, just so you know, there is a point at the very end of the information I have for you today that is going to keep me up until I have someone to hold me (laughs) because of who I have to mention. But we will get there. It's going to be very exciting. I'm so excited for you. I, I'm not very into history. I mean, you know, it's history, so, like, it is what it is. But for you to be so engrossed, and, like, you were messaging me, like, last night. You are like, I found this uh, historic fiction writer that gave me all this information, and my Discord blew up. It was like, link, 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 <laughs> link, 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 link. And it was all of this shit that you'd found at the last second. And I was like, you know that we're recording tomorrow, right? <laughs> You dove so fucking far into Anne Boleyn. I got like the tiniest glimpse at your notes, and it's a lot. <laughs> so I'm, oh yeah, I'm buckle up! We're, we're sixteen pages into this outline. Holy mama! I've still got her actual ghost stories to get into. Um, just so everyone knows, this episode is going to talk a lot about her life and death, and then next episode we'll actually be discussing her hauntings. Because there's so much to cover in order to understand why she might haunt certain places. Just be prepared to get a lot of information this week and actually understand how it works next week. I'm like, actually, like, I I don't know anything about her, but I'm sitting here. I'm like, I'm actually a little bit, like, spooked already. Like, <laughs> like you're, you're hyping her up and I'm like, oh my god, I've got my blanket, my cat's over here somewhere. I'm like, <laughs> I'm about to get fucking terrified. O death, rock me asleep. Bring me the quiet rest. Let pass my weary, guiltless ghost out of my careful breast. Toll on the passing bell. Ring out the doleful knell. 
Let thy sound my death tell. Death doth draw nigh, there is no remedy. My pains who can express, alas, they are so strong. My dolor will not suffer strength, my life for to prolong. Toll on, thou passing bell, ring out my doleful knell. Let thy sound my death tell. Death doth draw nigh, there is no remedy. Alone in prison strong, I wait my destiny. Woe worth this cruel hap that I should taste this misery. Toll on, thou passing bell, let thy sound my death tell. Death doth draw nigh, there is no remedy. Farewell, my pleasures past. Welcome, my present pain. I feel my torments so increase that life cannot remain. Cease now, thou passing bell. Rung is my doleful knell. For the sound my death doth tell. Death doth draw nigh. There is no remedy. So the song that you just heard was originally a poem credited to the amazing woman that we're discussing today just before her private execution, courtesy of the scoundrel king himself, Henry VIII. Just so you know, that's not his official title from what I can tell, but I am on a mission to change it because this man's had six wives, killed two of them, and tried to disenfranchise the other two so hard that one of their daughters went on to be Bloody Mary herself. Can I uh, put in my own leg in the race? Mm-hmm. And instead of what scoundrel Henry, can we call him No Head Henry? Because I'd like to think that nobody touched that man's voluntarily. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we will get to that part later because I have information on his sex life. But <laughs> oh, no, it's that kind of podcast. <laughs> I feel like we need to mention that the Bone Garden is not a sexy podcast. <laughs> If you're getting turned on by discussions of King Henry VIII, then hit me up, baby. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Ooh, write us an email. Bonegardenpodcast at gmail.com. So today we're going to be talking about my favorite historical figure and also the mother of one of the most beloved queens in history, Anne Boleyn. So Anne is a very interesting historical specter because she only really existed in the English court for less than 10 years and changed the entire history of the country. And she's also considered the most well-traveled and famous ghost in the world, having been sighted in multiple regions and castles, making her a discussion on why do we see ghosts and when we see them, why are they who we see? Isn't Anne Boleyn also technically a Christmas spirit? Kind of like how Die Hard's technically a Christmas movie. (laughs) (laughs) That is... That is... Actually, so apt, and I hate it. <laughs> Anne Boleyn is the diehard of spirits. <laughs> I love that for her. What's I've never seen Die Hard, but I got into like such a heated debate with my coworker Grace over it because oh. we were just casually talking about Die Hard, and I just bullshit bullshitted it, mm-hmm. and I was like, "Yeah, Die Hard's totally a Christmas movie because it's snowing." And they're like, that's not how that works. 
it's like set at Christmas, but her being a Christmas ghost is what made me realize that her ghost is even like as popular as it is. But she's one of the most well-known ghosts in history and one of the most likely to be sighted. So that's pretty cool. Damn. Okay, Anne, I see you with the hustle. Right? So before we actually go into her history, I do want to preface this with a very important disclaimer. I am only an amateur history buff. All of this information is cross-referenced between multiple sources, but I can't claim any of it is like perfect fact. So Anne was born into the peerage rank of lady, which is kind of nebulous because there are a few ranks where women are called lady. She was specifically daughter of an earl, Lord Thomas Boleyn. To convey a better understanding, there are five main ranks of English peerage after the king, because the king has no peers. In order, they go Duke, Marquess, which is also pronounced Marquis and Marquis, so Earl, Viscount, and then Baron. Maybe because her rank wasn't quite high enough to matter, or perhaps because the king himself had these records expunged, or because the location where her records were held got destroyed during one of the many war times, her exact birth date is not on record. We have a guess, however, between the years 1501 and 1507. She had two siblings, Mary and George, not Mary the king's daughter. There are going to be a lot of Marys, a lot of Catherines, a lot of Janes. Funnily enough, I was, I don't know if I ever, if I ever actually told you this, mm-hmm. um, I was almost named Catherine when I was born, and then my mom was like, nah. <laughs> That's I could have had such a cool fucking name, but no, it's fine. I would have ended up going by Kate either way as I got older, but mm-hmm. I could have been one of your Catherines. Slaps the hood of the car. You wouldn't believe how many Catherines and Marys you could fit in here. <laughs> okay, so just so you know, Henry actually did have six wives. Three of them were Catherine, two of them were Anne, and one of them was Jane. <laughs> What was Henry's mom's name? Was that Catherine too? Is it like an Oedipal complex Mary. kind of thing? His mom's it was name Mary. was Mary, I think. No, no, it was Elizabeth because, um, let me make sure. Yeah, Elizabeth. Elizabeth of York. Because both Anne and Henry's moms were both named Elizabeth, which is why they named their daughter Elizabeth. It was an honor. Random bits of information that I remember having not written it down. It's like I'm a real scholar. <laughs> I don't know where that voice came from. I'm so sorry. In fact, I am a scholar. <laughs> got my uh, my history books. Got my <laughs> atlas. Got my BBC documentaries. That's for big, beautiful Catherines. <laughs> history Channel where? I am the History Channel. <laughs> One of his Catherines was actually spelt with a K. Oh, Catherine. I know that Catherine. I don't know Catherine, but I know Catherine. <laughs> <laughs> Hey y'all. <laughs> I don't know who this I don't know who the soul is in my body right now. It's Anne. <laughs> okay, so um interestingly enough, there is one scholar that thinks that like Anne was actually born uh, like in fi- uh 1512 or some shit, so 5 years later, which during that means that during her like weird royalty internship, she would have been an actual infant. So uh, that doesn't track, but that's we'll get there. We'll get there because you have no idea what I'm on about right now. Oh, I'm so ready. Because we don't have a specific date, we also don't know for sure where she was born. But our best guess is Blickling Hall in Norfolk. But we do know that she was raised in Hever Castle in Kent. 
An interesting thing about the court throughout Europe is that they consistently send their children to go experience and learn with other peers. Anne was no different, except that her father, Thomas, was very beloved as a diplomat to the king and was often sent to do his bidding. During this time, he caught the eye of Margaret of Austria, who was the regent of the Netherlands at the time. Just so you know, a regent is like a fancy word that means that they run the country until the next in line comes of age. So they take care of the baby king until the baby king is an adult king. So it's basically like a placeholder, like a stand-in authority figure. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Usually a regent is like a family member, but not a family member that could be in line for kinghood because how easy would it be to say, oh no, the child died. Now I am ruler. So it would be like if like fun uncle Daryl decided to come over and like take care of the little baby until they're old enough to, to take power themselves. Exactly. It's like a fancy royal adoption with the added bonus of also adopting the country. So because of Thomas's charm, Margaret actually invited Anne to come study with her, even though she was likely to have been quite a bit younger than the average courtier of the time. She even got a nickname from Margaret, Le Petit Boulin, or the Little Boulin. That's really cute. Isn't it? It's very precious. Mm-hmm. She's also, this is interesting too, because she was also a very short woman. She is about as tall as I am. Aww, maybe slightly taller. That's really taller. fucking cute, because you're what, five feet tall just about? Oh my god. Yep. Mm-hmm. She's recorded to be between five feet and five foot three. Wow. I mean, and mm-hmm. for, for me to say really little, it doesn't really count because I'm six feet tall. So I think that anybody like shorter mm-hmm. than five seven is really little. But oh my god, that's that's adorable. I mm-hmm. love her already. Margaret loved her so much that she told Thomas that she actually owed him for sending her to her rather than the other way around. So during her year or so internship with this regent, Anne learned a lot of important skills, likely more so than average, as she took to them with extreme passion. She learned arithmetic, her family genealogy, grammar, history, reading, spelling, and writing. She also learned to dance, do embroidery, have particularly good manners, manage a household, play music, including the lute, needlework, and singing. Other learnings were games such as cards, chess, and dice, archery, and falconry. Wait, so you mean to tell me that on top of being educated, I mean, as as well as money could have bought at that time, she's also learning fucking archery mm-hmm. and falconry, like some kind of a bad bitch. So after Anne's studies in the Netherlands, she went to France and stayed there for up to like seven years and maybe a little more, though accounts tend to vary a lot here. She was maid of honor to Queen Mary, not her sister. And then to Mary's 15-year-old stepdaughter, Queen Claude. This is the only time we see the name Claude at all. You're welcome. In France, she learned French and gained even more major interests. She learned about art, fashion, illuminated manuscripts, which I didn't know that that was the name for them. But those are those fancy artistic writing in books that often start with, like, the cute little picture on the first letter. So she learned, like, fucking hand lettering and all that fun shit? Mm -hmm, and calligraphy and like how to do that one letter with the picture on it oh like in spongebob where he's like i've got to do my essay and then he's (laughs) writing out his essay and he's like almost there almost there and done the (laughs) wow i didn't even know that there was an actual term for that i was just like 
I would call it like the procrastination letter. <laughs> yeah, no, I didn't know either. And I learned during this research that it is in fact called illuminated manuscripts and Anne knew how to do it. Um, she also learned literature, music, poetry, and religious philosophy while in France. She found a deep love for French culture, including dance, etiquette, literature, music, and poetry. And according to some sources, she also, quote unquote, gained experience in flirtation and courtly love, which means that she knew how to like flirt with people and I guess learned it in France. Do you think, okay, so first of all, learning it in France like makes her what, like a an octuple threat because she already knows fucking everything. <laughs> but do you think that like the the French the French do you think the French art of flirting <laughs> do you think the French art of flirting is like I don't want to use a French accent because I don't want to get canceled because I can't do it. <laughs> but do you think it's like okay, step one, walk down the street, step two, and make eye contact. But then look away, because remember, mystique. Step three, slowly raise your foot and extend it forward. <laughs> Step four, pull up the hem of your of your dress just a little bit. Shove off those fucking ankles, you dirty girl. She was so careful not to show off her ankles at any given point that during her execution, she actually tucked her ankles under her dress so that when her body fell... Her ankles wouldn't show. Wait, really? Yeah. Okay, so this is like a total shot in the dark, and I don't I don't know if you'll know it. Is there a specific reason why it's always joked about that, oh, she wouldn't even show her ankles, like, showing ankles was such a big thing? Or was it that, like, women during that time were so conservative that even, like, the slightest, like, show of skin was like, ooh, you're a, you're a little freaky-deaky little lady. I think it's more the latter, but I actually couldn't give you an answer on that one. It's not something I looked into. Ah, well, then you failed. I'm just kidding. You're so right. I'm so sorry. Especially <laughs> after our you. conversation about exposing ankles last week. Oh, damn. Yeah. You know, it's fine. I, I should have taken the uh, taken the reins and actually looked into it. So, I mean, I guess shame on both of us. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're both exposed and ashamed. Yeah. <laughs> After her time with the queens of France, she was recalled back to the English court in 1515 by the scoundrel king himself in order to settle an inheritance dispute by marrying her to James Butler. He was her cousin, I want to say it was, and it was meant to keep the land in both of the families of Sir Piers Butler um, and her father Thomas, as they both had a claim to the title when the landowner died. The marriage actually never went through, though, because from what I can tell, the Pope or another part of the Holy See was required to accept the marriage first. For those of you that don't know, the Holy See is like the different tiers of religious dictatorship in Catholicism. Dictatorship isn't the right word. Um, um, so yeah, so the Holy See is like the different tiers of the religious ruling of the area. Um, with the Pope at the top. The Pope was required to accept the marriage first, and being a whole guy, this man said no and possibly was captured at the time, so getting him to appeal took too long, and then I guess some other solution was found. The Pope was captured? <laughs> yes! What the- Okay, so I, I know that, like, uh, in the past, Popes haven't always been the coolest guys, 
but like did they just roll up with ye old horse and buggy <laughs> and like clack some sticks together and be like thou art a bitch away with you <laughs> they just they just took the whole ass pope away the pope that needed to like uh, approve this this union this like arrangement imagine getting cock blocked by the pope getting arrested <laughs> so the pope ruled a majority of like the continent of europe because everyone agreed to listen to the pope and that's how they stayed somewhat friendly with each other but at the time i want to say it was rome had captured him and i couldn't tell you why because i did not look into it but it's also very interesting that rome had captured him considering that rome is where the pope is normally most powerful from what i remember i mean rome probably captured the pope because they wanted to be like we stole your fucking pope, bitches. What are you gonna do? Square the fuck up. We took your fucking pope. We took your fucking pope. What are you gonna do? Huh? Huh? You gonna send your pope after us? No, he's right fucking here. And they just hold him up. He's like, please help me. I didn't want to be here. Okay, but the pope was also like a bad bitch and like straight up was like, listen, you may be the king ordained by God, but I am the only man in existence that can be like, bitch. Your power is meaningless here. I actually talked to God, and God said that you were a quivering fucking pussy. <laughs> <laughs> now put me down. <laughs> Instead, Anne secured a post at court as maid of honor to Catherine d'Aragon, the scoundrel Henry VIII's first wife. At this point, she's between maybe 15 and 21. Okay, so Anne had already had some kind of like an indirect contact with... Uh, with no head henry i know you keep trying to call him the scoundrel king i am always going to call him no head henry because i like both yeah honestly. <laughs> but no so let's she'd, ruin this man's afterlife <laughs> so so she'd already had like an indirect uh like correlation with henry the eighth yes and it gets weirder he also at this time was having an affair with her sister Okay, so was there a particular reason why they picked Anne Boleyn to be her maid of honor? Or was it just like, hey, you, I like the fact that you never show your ankles. You are clearly <laughs> a uh, a respectable woman. So come so, here. Um, so generally, the courtiers of the time were... I can't think of words. Uh, so generally, the courtiers of the time were the... Other parts of the peerage of not just England, but the entire continent. And the reason for having them wait on the queen and things like that is so that royalty stayed with royalty. And it was a much safer way of keeping care of the monarchs than letting um, than letting peasants take care of them. Because peasants often have a much bigger reason to murder them. Okay, so like they would have rather to have uh, a member of another upstanding family participate in this than having, say, like Scuppy McGee come in off the streets and like get their crusty, crusty fingers all over Catherine. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly that's exactly right. <laughs> Anyways, so during this time on March fourth, fifteen twenty-two. Anne made her debut at the Chateau Vert, or the Green Castle, um, pageant in honor of the imperial ambassadors coming at the time. It was customary for courtiers to play in these performances, 
and she played the character Perseverance and took part in an elaborate dance with Henry's younger sister, Mary, and Anne's older sister, Mary. Ah, so they're just getting down with the Marys. (laughs) Also, Henry's daughter's name was Mary. Jesus Christ. (laughs) All of the women wore white satin gowns with gold thread meant to supplement their beauty. And Anne was an excellent dancer, and all of this combined set her apart from any of the other courtiers. Which, again, she was as young as 15 at this point. I mean, even though she was 15, I don't want to be one of those, like, oh, she was 15, but it didn't matter back in the day. Mm -hmm. So, do you think, and this is obviously, like, just speculation, so, do you think that uh, she popped up on uh, No Head Henry's radar as, like, a prospective bride at this point? Like, for later down the line? Or was it just like, oh, that's just good old Annie. She's just hanging out. From what I can tell, he didn't make any mention of her before he started courting her uh, quite a few years later. So it's very probable that she just existed in the area. And he was like, yeah, she's pretty and all, but like her sister, though, you know. Living in this proximity with the scoundrel is what caused him to become infatuated with her, but not quite yet. Although at this time he was messing around with her sister, Mary, and might even be the actual father of her two children. Um, One of the writers alive at the time wrote that Anne was the perfect woman courtier. She was stylish, danced with ease. She could do practically everything. Everyone wanted her. And she was exciting and fun to be around. Kate, she was a manic pixie dream girl. Oh my god, I love ye old manny pixie- Manny. <laughs> I love ye old manic pixie dream girl. I mean, I don't really blame every fucking person for being so into Anne Boleyn. I mean, she did fucking everything. Yeah. And, I mean, even when I covered uh, Elizabeth Bautery, uh, who was, she was born in what, oh dear lord, 16-something-ish. I'm definitely mm-hmm. wrong on that date. But she was incredibly well-educated. Everybody wanted her. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, Anne Boleyn, she studied so much. She was into falconry, which, I mean, that would make me love her. Mm-hmm. Like, that in and of itself. Yeah. But she just sounds like an absolute fucking powerhouse of a person. Yeah. So, I actually have a theory. And um, it might be my own personal bias um, coming through on this one. But I have a theory that she was neurodivergent and had either ADHD or autism because that would absolutely explain the sheer amount of special interests that she had. Okay. I mean, that definitely makes sense. It also explains um, a lot of the other things about her life that we'll find out later. Um, Namely, that she had no fucking clue what a social cue was. After about a year at court, Anne was secretly engaged to Henry Percy, son of the Earl of Northumberland, but his father refused the match, and when they took the engagement to the Cardinal that January, he also refused the match and was sent back home to Hevercastle. She did eventually go back to court, once again under the service of Catherine, and Percy was married to Lady Mary Talbot, another Mary, who he had been promised to since adolescence. Sometime at this point is when the scoundrel king finally turned his attention to Anne. Now, an interesting thing to note here is that kings commonly took on official mistresses and had no intention of hiding them whatsoever. It was really just not a big deal. And whether he wanted it to be open or a secret, whoever the king set their sights on was kind of just expected to say yes because, well, he's the king and he gets what he wants. Wait, so you mean to tell me that, oh, it's such a fucking double standard because 
I think it was one of King Henry's wives that was actually executed because she had had uh, relations with somebody else prior to marrying him. Um, not prior to marrying him, but both of the me- women he had executed were over adultery. Oh, gotcha. Okay. It's the biggest double standard I think I've ever fucking heard. Yes, but there is actually a reason for that. And it's that a queen having sex with someone other than the king is considered treason because it's seen as an attempt to usurp the bloodline of the king. Because if she were to get pregnant from someone else and call it the king's son, that person would be put on the throne, completely removing the bloodline of the king. Still a super double standard, but there is some, like, weird... That, like, makes me need to go take a fucking shower. There is some weird, like, legal (laughs) understanding of it, sort of. But, no, it's awful. It's so dumb. Scoundrel King No-Head Henry VIII officially started his pursuit of Anne in February or March of 1526. Now, I do want to point out also that Henry was born at least 10 years before Anne. And if not like, somewhere around 20, like, within that range, and was more or less her boss, except with the added bonus of being able to just threaten killing anyone he wanted without real recourse. So the way he acted toward Anne was predatory at best, but it was normal for the time, so I digress. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty disgusting. But, like, the interesting thing about Anne is that she does something absolutely unthinkable for the time. And when he sets his sights on her, she tells him that she will not be his mistress, only his wife, and will not sleep with him until such a time. Oh, shit. Yeah. So there's one source that I found that tried to say that Henry actually chose not to sleep with her because he wanted any children he had with hers to be heirs. But considering he was banging Mary before Anne and probably fathered two of her kids, it's likely he didn't give a fuck about what happened to the kids. I feel like he was just like, oh, well, well, I wanted to wait to, to bang Anne because I wanted to make it <laughs> official. It's like, no, you wanted a way to bang Anne because you knew that she would fucking unhinge her jaws and swallow you like a fucking snake because <laughs> it's her way or no way. So go fuck yourself. <laughs> But um, in an even more in an even more unexpected turn of events, the king actually agrees to make her his queen and sets about doing so as soon as possible. So, oh, so you know he was just gunning for that yield puss puss. Yeah, like <laughs> he's like, what's that? She won't let me smash until there's a ring on her finger. I right, brb, let me go arrange like. What I can only assume to be like a super duper fancy schmancy ceremony. So at the time, the English kingdom answers to the Holy See, or the religious overlords of Europe. So the scoundrel king comes up with a plan. He sends for Pope Clement VII to annul his marriage with his current wife, Catherine, who had been married to his brother, the king, before him. Though it was very short-lived as he, you know, died. And she was married to the next in line because that's obviously how love and the court works. JK, you're a noble. Love isn't a real thing for you, as Henry will prove over and over again. So he tries to say that she consummated her marriage with his brother and therefore was not a virgin, making their marriage a sin and thus invalid. So you remember how earlier I said the Pope was probably a prisoner of Rome? Uh, yeah. So at this point, he for sure was. So getting to him was incredibly difficult. 
So instead, Henry tries to get the clergy of England to agree with his decision and claim that that makes the decision valid enough and divorces Catherine against the Pope's will. So it's like, let me speak to the manager while the manager isn't here. Okay, well, like, I'm just going to do this anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm going to leave my return on the counter and just, like, take $50 out of the register. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> so, okay. So this is fully irrelevant to, like, anything from what I can tell. But during the time that Anne and Henry were recording, there was a certain point where Anne, um was at home in Hever Castle and con- contracted sweating sickness, which was a really nasty sickness that only seems to exist, that only seems to have existed for like a couple hundred years, but would kill within a day of showing up in some cases. So the king what? sends his personal ass physician to her care for her, probably saving her life. Okay, so I just Googled it. Yeah. Uh, it was also known as the sweats. Mm-hmm. And honestly, <laughs> Hold on. Some of the pictures, one of the pictures when you Google sweating sickness is a bunch of skeletons that look like they should be in pain, but they're just doing a little jig. (laughs) So this says that infections like tuberculosis, endocarditis, which is an infection of the heart valve, or a bone infection Mm -hmm. can cause the sweating. Um, But for me, it's really like if I've had way too much dairy, (laughs) I start getting the sweats really, really bad. Maybe she just had a really extreme allergic reaction. During their courting is where things start to get really interesting. Um, In 1531, the scoundrel king banishes Catherine and her daughter Mary from the English court and gives their rooms to Anne so he can be closer to her. But public support stayed with Catherine, even causing locals to go so far as to attack her at the locations that she was known to stay at. One such time was while she was dining on the River Thames where she barely escaped by boat. Um, Anne herself also worked to gain support for the king's divorce and had an integral part to play in creating a friendship between England and France, who also answered to the Holy See at the time. On September 1st, 1532, Henry made Anne the Marquess of Pembroke, the only woman to become a Marquess by assignment rather than inheritance. This was likely to help validate her position for their next move, which was on October 16, 1532, during the conference at Calais, where they gained the support of the French government, though the king does tell them that he will not explicitly break allegiance with the Pope for them. After gaining the support of France, they got quite a bit more brazen, and even though the Pope had not officially allowed Henry to divorce Catherine, they secretly got married on November 14, 1532, and then when Anne became pregnant, They had a formal public marriage on January 25th, 1533. He wasn't officially divorced from Catherine yet. Archbishop Thomas Cranmer only declared Henry and Catherine's marriage null and void on May 23rd of the same year, almost a full four months later. And on the 28th of the same month, Anne's marriage was deemed valid by the very same archbishop. Jesus fucking Christ. (laughs) This man's... Okay, so whether it was beheading or like... Getting his shit nulled and voided. Homeboy, even though he looked like a whole ass wisdom tooth, <laughs> had a revolving door of puss puss. He really did. But, but okay, so naturally, Pope Clement. You know what? Kid. Wait a second. Hold okay. on, because now I'm on some shit. <laughs> 
I'm looking at uh, uh, our at our homeboy No Head Henry. <laughs> he literally, and this isn't a slight at, at anybody that works in the industry. He looks like the deli clerk that always smells like bologna, even when he's not at work. <laughs> he's the type of guy that like you'd run into in a GameStop that's breathing super fucking heavily over uh, the newest Halo game, and. He, like, picks up a cartridge off of a shelf, looks at it, and puts it back. And then when you go to touch it, somehow it smells like cold cuts. <laughs> He's straight up the kind of guy that gets mad that he might possibly lose to a woman in a card game and just concedes the whole tournament. He looks like the type where, like, he's losing in a Yu-Gi-Oh game and he's like, No, wait, I wasn't ready. No, I still had my Exodia cards. <laughs> Like, if you look at any fucking portraits of this man, his eyebrows look like they're trying to run the fuck away from his face. (laughs) They are fleeing fucking north for the winter. Naturally, Pope Clement is pissed because they're actively fighting his authority and going against his order, which, considering he has several whole countries under his fingertips, it's not a great way of staying in power. So he excommunicates both Henry and Cranmer. Um... Cranmer being the one that validated the marriage of Anne. I looked up what excommunication actually is because I thought it was like banishment. Uh, But what it means is that they're officially excluded from participating in the sacraments and services of the Catholic Church. Basically, he damned their eternal souls until they listened to him and the scoundrel king went back to being married to Catherine. Which I guess is a cool power move uh, if the king wasn't so determined to have his way all the time. The Pope can't really banish the king, but he sure can officially say he sucks and really is the only one who legally can. And I think that that is beautiful. After all of this goes down, on June 1st, 1533, Anne is crowned queen using St. Edward's crown, which had previously only been used to crown monarchs as opposed to their spouses, which are called like queen consort and I think king consort, but I didn't look that part up. So that's my best guess. It's thought that it was an additional attempt to mark his marriage as the most valid and true as opposed to Catherine's. And there is a lot of public outrage and the Holy See is absolutely against it. So what does Henry do? He says, fuck the Pope and breaks the whole country away from the Catholic Church. Why don't we just take the country and push it somewhere else? (laughs) Also, I have another note here that I forgot that I wrote in the early stages of my research. King has tantrum and says, fine, if I can't be part of your club, you can't be part of my England. (laughs) (laughs) So on September 7th, 1533, Anne has a daughter and names her Elizabeth, who later goes on to be Queen Elizabeth I. But she was expected to be a son. So Anne was super worried that Catherine's daughter Mary would steal claim to the throne from Elizabeth. So Henry removed more power from the now ex-princess in an attempt to discredit any legitimacy that she might have had to claim the throne. Um, In 1534, English Parliament declares Henry the supreme head of the church, and Protestantism is officially created. For those of you not in the know, the most basic definition of Protestantism that I can describe is just that they don't answer to the Holy See. This means that officially, because the king wanted some of Anne's ass, they created a whole new religion separated a kingdom from the clutches of a theocracy and delivered it into the hands of a slightly less oppressive theocracy run by the king. This changed the entire nation. Have you ever wanted to be laid so bad that you changed the entire course of history just for a little bit of that puss puss? 
But yeah, so after all of that happened, Anne did not stop there. During her ruling, she had a lot of naysayers because she expected to be just as at the forefront of politics as she was when they were working on the scoundrel's divorce. And she had a very ahead-of-her-time perspective on how to rule a country. She gave frequently to charity, but went above and beyond what was expected of a queen, even going so far as to hand out coins herself to the lower classes. She played a major part in the creation and distribution of the English translation of the Bible, as she was adamant that anyone should be allowed to read the Bible for themselves. She also, You know what, this is a little bit of a stretch, but, mm-hmm. but like, Anne Boleyn kind of gives me, like, Princess Diana kind of vibes. A lot of people have actually associated the two. There's an entire movie dedicated to associating the two. I mean, and- she gives me that whole, like, she... First of all, incredibly well-educated, but she also seems to have this, like, genuine compassion for people, Um, Mm -hmm. even the people that she isn't, like, obligated to be nice to. Like, you know how sometimes, like, if you go to, like, a family reunion or, like, a workplace outing, you just, you're obligated to be nice to those people? Mm -hmm. She seems like the type that would go up to, like, the not-cool-kid table, which, by the way... Um, I'm still supposed to be like situated at, like the kids table at my family outings, <laughs> even though I'm almost I'm I'm 25. But yeah. no, Anne Boleyn, she seems like the type of person where she recognizes the fact that she has a lot of authority and that she's from uh basically like the one percent, mm-hmm. but she still seems to care so much about like the average person. Yeah, no, absolutely, and it's interesting that you brought up Princess Diana. Because um, there are a lot of things that compare the two of them. Mm -hmm. And actually, like I said, there's a whole movie about it that I haven't watched that I actually just found out about today. But there are sources that actually say that when Princess Diana was growing up, she was very interested in Anne Boleyn and even compared herself to her. Oh, damn. Yeah. So it's I mean, if the shoe fits, like, absolutely. So, yeah, that's actually very interesting that you brought that up. Um, they also suffered a very similar fate um, in that it's entirely possible and probably even that Diana was assassinated. Oh, I thoroughly believe that Princess Diana was assassinated. Mm-hmm. Abs- like, a billion percent. Um, but, yeah, no, it's... <laughs> it's wild to think of that and like the fact that you just came up with that off the cuff just fucking blows me away aww thanks bitch (laughs) (laughs) but um but yeah so she was adamant that everyone should be able to read the bible for themselves she believed in education and worked to educate the masses in any way that she could and she did a lot of amazing things to progress society but very few of them actually relate to her ghost so I'm gonna kind of stay light on those topics and tell you that if you're interested, you absolutely should read up on her. And if you want resources, you can absolutely feel free to reach out and ask. Because this is one of my biggest hyperfixations. And it would actually make my whole day to have someone ask me more about it. <laughs> but um, because she was so outspoken about her belief that she should have a part in ruling the country. And her refusal to back down and know her place as the king's wife. And that's it. She often got into arguments with the king, 
As manic pixie dream girls often are, she was super fun to chase, but too much to love, and the king started to see her as more of a complication than someone to care for. This was further exacerbated by the fact that she miscarried a minimum of two times after the birth of Elizabeth, leaving the king without a male heir. When the final miscarriage was far enough along to determine that he was going to be a boy, public opinion was that she was being punished for her part in breaking the nation from God, and that she was not fit to be queen. She was pretty well hated the entire time that she was queen, which is wild considering how well-loved she is now. Both her and Henry did obviously have a petty streak, though, because on the 8th of January, news of Catherine of Aragon's death reached the king and Anne, and they were so overjoyed that they wore yellow from head to toe in public, which was a symbol of joy and celebration in England, although a symbol of mourning in Spain. So it's kind of a little iffy there. But on top of that, they celebrated her death with festivities. Fuck. Uh, (laughs) That's that's kind of like, and I don't want to, you know, uh, be offensive, but it's kind of like when uh, when the queen died. That was what, like six months ago, I want to say. Um, and people in like Scotland, Ireland, some people in the U.S. for celebrating, mm-hmm. but that's that's really fucking petty. <laughs> yeah, it really is. I will say on the topic of Scotland and Ireland, um, an interesting cultural phenomenon about people dying um, in a lot of Irish culture. I am not saying that this was what happened in this c- case because. The Irish and the Scottish have plenty of reasons to celebrate an English monarch dying. Um, it is often customary to celebrate the life of a person rather than mourn their death. So after a short wake, more or less, it's all parties afterward for the person who died. I love that. Mm-hmm. I was just going to say, I think like, you know, when when my time eventually comes, I, yeah, I want to be remembered and I want people to to be sad for a minute. But and I know that it's it's a very uh, cliche thing for people to say, you know, oh, they wouldn't want you to be sad. I want people to fucking live it up. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I I don't want to get all like gloomist <laughs> and everything. I I want people to remember me for what I did and not for what I could have done. You know, oh, gone so soon. Oh, mm-hmm. you know, she she could have done more. Like, oh, she was an old lady or whatever. I want you to remember what I did and whether that's, you know, uh, finally getting published or the podcast or the friends that I've made along the way. Like, I would rather be celebrated for who I was and what I did in life than what I missed out on in my death. Yeah. No, I fully agree. Also on the topic of Irish celebrations of death, um, I would like to recommend to everyone the song The Night Pat Murphy Died. My favorite my favorite version is Fiddler's Green's version. But uh, this song is so funny because because of Irish culture, it is so hard to tell whether this song is incredibly respectful or incredibly disrespectful. <laughs> it's a wonderful song and I think everyone should uh, should enjoy it at least once. I'm gonna link it to you so that you can listen to it later. For for context, the the song itself is about um, a man named Pat Murphy. He died, and so they stole his body and took him around town and like drank with him and like 
to keep the liquor cold, they stored it with his corpse. And then when they went to take him back to um, to his tomb, they realized they left the body at the house. Oh my fucking god. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's like, it's one of my favorite Irish folk songs. I mean, I think um, at my wake... And I'm I'm pretty sure that like a, a comedian like did a bit about this at some point, so I'm not gonna take credit for uh, a joke that isn't mine. Mm-hmm. I really want a closed casket, like initially, but I want Pop Goes the Weasel to be playing on loop. <laughs> <laughs> I think that'd be really funny. Um, <laughs> but no, that's I. It's really hard because you know you lose people in your life and you. Like you, you want to be sad. You want to mourn because that's a natural human thing to do. Mm. But at the same time, you need to remember that this person they they lived how, however long because some people really do die way too soon. But you have to remember that these people, um, whether it was a friend, a family member, um, a, a partner, they they had an impact on your life, and they wouldn't want you to just sit around, you know, existing in a realm of what ifs. One of my Kate isms is that if you exist in the realm of what if, then you ignore the realm of what is, mm-hmm. and that definitely like rings true for death. Like you can you can be like, oh, I, I wish I had more time, and I wish this, and I wish that. Well, this is what you had. You had a wonderful person that was in your life, except for Catherine. I don't know her deal, um, <laughs> but you you had this this person in your life, and you need to cherish the memories of them just because somebody. Uh, has left the the physical world that doesn't mean that they're gone and it's it's a hard thing for a lot of people i know that when my grandfather died i was in denial for years and i I still kind of am but i'm also still working through that because he was really important to me as a kid Mm -hmm. but you just you need to just move forward and carry them and their memory and their legacy with you Mm -hmm. that was beautiful (laughs) oh thanks yeah so on top of that Anne would have like mood swings where she'd get really stressed and like at one point she pulled a locket off of somebody's um neck because it implicated that the king was cheating on her and things like that and she would openly fight with henry on things all the time like in front of the court uh so she was becoming a nuisance she didn't understand social cues and because of that got herself in a lot of trouble there's also like at one point there's a source i found that says that she hated lady mary Catherine's daughter so much that Mary was convinced that Anne was trying to poison her. So like weird little flaws. By her final miscarriage, it's clear that Anne has fallen out of favor with the scoundrel king, and he starts openly courting Jane Seymour in March of 1536, moving Anne out of her rooms in the same way that he did with Catherine. And just a month later, he has Anne investigated for treason. So to recap, this man's was chasing tail. Sees Anne Boleyn and he's like, damn, thine ankles do be fine. (laughs) And then they get together. She has uh, a daughter, miscarries a couple of times, which that, the fact that some people are like, oh my God, it's totally like the mother's fault or it's like divine intervention. Mm -hmm. Like you're, you're still losing a, a pregnancy and that's really hard. Yeah. But so she miscarries. And everyone's like, uh-huh, lol, Anne is uh, being uh, interrupted by God because she doesn't deserve to be queen. So then he goes out and he finds this other fucking woman. 
And then just kind of, like, shoves her into, like, the closet with, like, the old, like, ballet shoes and the Christmas lights. And is like, hey, how you doing, little mama? How are your ankles today? Yeah. And the fun thing about Jane is that she is the complete opposite of Anne. She's quiet. She's demure. She's, like, she bows to the king on every single wish that he has. Like, she is exactly everything that he wanted from Anne that Anne refused to give him. Yeah, I was going to say that I felt like even like from the jump, like when you started describing Anne's personality and how she was with Henry, I was like, yeah, that's going to be an issue because, you know, the the typical I'm a strong, independent woman. Mm-hmm. Anne was the strong, independent woman. She and she thought for herself. Was. She had her own ambitions. She was incredibly intelligent. She actually fucking cared about like the the lower class people. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think it's safe to assume that Henry was incredibly threatened by Anne Boleyn. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And like, you know, instead of him being like, mm-hmm, come on, honey. Oh, you little firecracker. I love you so much, which I'm sure that love never played a part in it. Yeah, no, absolutely instead not. <laughs> of Instead of trying to like work with her, because I think that if they'd actually worked together and if King Henry wasn't such a fucking asshole, they would have been an incredibly powerful couple. Absolutely. Because he's he was such a such a powerful figure. And I'm sure that a lot of people were fucking terrified of him. Yeah. So to have him being so good cop, bad cop. <laughs> for him to be so uh like headstrong in I'm sure all these different like political affairs and you know, all of that good stuff. And then having his wife uh being so not not pandering, um being so compassionate for the people uh, that they were tasked with overseeing and taking care of as the the rulers of the kingdom, they would have done a lot. They would have done really, really well. But all King Henry cared about was getting his dick wet mm-hmm. and uh, finding this nice, there. quiet, submissive uh, woman to be with. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that Jane didn't work out with Henry either because, you know, he liked to chop people's heads off. Well, Jane died... From what I can tell in childbirth. Um, do we know if, did Jane end up giving him a son? Yes, she did. Oh, okay. Um, but he actually, after coming into the monarchy himself, o- died only like six years later. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. That's actually, I mean, I obviously like feel feel bad for her and the baby, but I mean, I think it's really fucking ironic that he basically cast Anne Boleyn aside because she couldn't give him a son and then he ran off and found somebody else and then as soon as he had a son he he lost his son oh it gets so much better than that um in in the ironic standpoint and I promise I will get there but it is so further down in the timeline (laughs) (laughs) so it's worth noting that before his investigation of Anne he actually tries to claim that Anne and his marriage is invalid as she obviously consummated her betrothal with Henry Percy. And when it becomes obvious that that won't work a second time, he switches tacks to accuse her of being the problem. So the scoundrel king asks Cromwell, previously a major player in helping Anne rise to power, to find evidence that allows him to be rid of the second of his six wives. In 1536, at the end of April, a Flemish musician in Anne's service named Mark Smeaton was arrested. He initially denied being the queen's lover, but later confessed. It's believed that torture was employed here and that he really was innocent, but it doesn't matter because aristocracy does not give a damn about justice. 
See, that's the issue that I have with um with people using torture to elicit confessions mm-hmm. is that and it's it's been proven time and time again that that torture is a very ineffective way of getting information from people mm-hmm. because they'll say whatever they have to in order to get the torture to stop. Exactly. So I definitely call bullshit on any of that. It's it's just I mean, you know, there there I'm sure that there are nicer ways to do it instead of, you know, uh, putting nails underneath people's fingernails and then making them like punch a wall or something like mm-hmm. you know waterboarding doesn't always give the best results yeah. neither does the rack neither do uh any other torture methods which i'm sure that we'll end up covering <laughs> in a in a future video. yeah i mean episode not a video this is an audio medium that <laughs> i'm gonna do a specifically visual um explanation of torture devices we're gonna do a visual demonstration where we torture each hot um (laughs) 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 that goes on the bone garden after dark (laughs) (laughs) um but no the thing is is that that's kind of the point in this case they didn't really care if it was the truth they just wanted the confession so torturing him into saying yes i did it was all they wanted it didn't matter if it was true um, but after getting that first confession that they needed, it was all a matter of time before Anne's execution. Um, after they got the first one, they went ahead and arrested a bunch of other people. And it's very likely that the people they arrested were less people that Anne might have slept with and more people that might have prevented Cromwell and Conmer and Henry from gaining more power in order. Sir Henry Norris was arrested on May 1st at a celebration of May Day, but was an aristocrat, so he couldn't be tortured and maintained his innocence all throughout his trial. He was damned by a supposed conversation that was overheard where Anne accused him of coming to her chambers often. Sir Francis Weston and Sir William Brereton were arrested two days later on the same charge. Sir Thomas Wyatt was also arrested but later released. Sir Richard Page was accused of having a sexual relationship with the Queen, but was acquitted after he couldn't be implicated in any capacity. And lastly, her own brother, George Boleyn, or Lord Rochefort, was arrested on charges of incest and treason. A fun anecdote I found here was that apparently he was given a note with words Anne allegedly said to him or wrote to him, and he was told to read it and answer whether she did or did not say those words. But instead of just answering, he read the whole note out loud so as not to be unjustly implicated himself. And from the sources that I found, if this did actually happen, was more or less about Henry being bad at sex and not particularly well hung. So this is basically just a giant horny witch hunt. <laughs> yeah. Jesus <laughs> fucking Christ. Um, one of the charges she was actually arrested under was in fact witchcraft. So yes. Um, <laughs> I mean, back in the day, if a woman knew how to fucking read in any capacity, you're clearly working with the devil. Mm-hmm. Like, what's that? You can do falconry. You Oh, you can summon a little bird. You know what else you can summon? It's fucking demons. <laughs> oh, you can read. Oh, do you like books, Anne? Yeah, well, clearly uh, you like the devil's book. <laughs> what the fuck? So, yeah, on May 2nd, 1536, Anne was arrested and sent to the Tower of London, where she was tried before a jury of, if her queenship was invalid, her peers, including Henry Percy and her uncle Thomas Howard, third Duke of Norfolk. 
William Kingston, the constable of the Tower of London, was actually instructed during her imprisonment there to inform the king of Anne's every move. He wrote several letters to the king describing Anne's final days, and it's some of the few surviving artifacts of Anne's life. And Kate, I want to take a second to shout out a history buff and fiction writer I came across on Kiora, of all places. Okay. Um, who seemed to have this well of information and answer questions about Anne with such confidence that I actually reached out to them and asked them how much of their writings were fiction and how much of them could be backed up with sources. And you know what they did, Kate? What they do? They asked me what specific information I was looking for, and they gave me all of the sources, Kate. This person gave me the greatest gift a little history buff like myself could ask for. And much like Anne's execution was the cause of me delaying our recording twice. So that's what <laughs> happened. <laughs> because, <laughs> because I was still excitedly pouring over all of the information that they gave me. So for all of you listening out there, if reading historical fiction is your jam, please do me a favor and check out Lisa Bryan. After looking through their works, I'm really excited to read a couple of them. So, Kate, if you don't mind, I'm going to go ahead and share brief descriptions of them. The first one is called The Golden Arrow and the Butterfly. It seems to be a standalone short romance story about Eros, the god of love, and Psyche, who he whisks away to Olympus after accidentally striking her with a golden arrow to protect her from love. I'm a sucker for Greek god fiction, so please sign me up. <laughs> oh, definitely. I'm, I'm actually down to you. I'm, I'm not a big romance person. But that sounds like I, I'm such a mythology bitch. So oh, the other two are a little bit more relevant to the podcast because Ghost Writer is a book about a woman who is hired to ghost write the biography of a popular politician and rents an isolated house that happens to be the home of her favorite author. She gets haunted and possibly falls in love with a ghost. She discovers lost letters in the attic and starts to unravel the mystery of how the author disappeared. This one has the added bonus of a curse, which our main character may or may not have to break. And these letters involve things like lost love, World War I, random secret history of the family. I'm so excited for this book. <laughs> I need to read that fucking yesterday. Right? I have the link for it. I'll get it to you in a moment. You have me at ghosts. You have me at writing. And then you also have me at, like, hot author, possibly. <laughs> Like a love triangle, perhaps? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Involving okay. a ghost. We love to see it. If you guys want to hear about me and Pippin's uh, <laughs> book ideas, that will probably be on a bonus episode. Um, we're, we're hoping to do, like, some Patreon or some, like, bonus content uh, starting mm -hmm. in uh, this year, actually. So 2023 is going to be an awfully big year for the podcast. Um, but, yeah, the last one that I'm, like, the most excited for Mm -hmm. This one is called Under These Restless Skies. and Love the name. That name is beautiful. Right? Um, a man captures the pelt of a selkie, binding her to him. The selkie herself is excited to be able to live on land and learn about human customs. But the man is a part of Henry VIII's court, meant to serve as his fool. Anne Boleyn herself takes a liking to the selkie and wants her for her own fool. The Selkie and the man try to soothe the scoundrel king's temper, but ultimately, they must take extra care in order to be safe from the king's wrath. This one, however, I'll probably have to wait to read, as Lisa has, like, an amazing sense of integrity and pulled it from the shelves to rewrite one of the villains. 
because after doing more research, it isn't historically accurate enough for them to feel comfortable selling it anymore. Honestly, the, um, honestly, they're much more excited about Anne's story than even me. And like, Kate can attest to how jazzed I was to cover her. <laughs> you, okay, so I know that I mentioned it toward the start of the episode, but when uh, when I'd reached out to you and I was like, I would love for you to be uh, a co-host on the show. Uh, you know, you can pick out a topic and like, we'll do this as your little pilot. You, I instantly felt it in my bones that you were going to cover Anne Boleyn. So the fact that there's some... You felt it in your butthole. <laughs> I felt it. I felt it in my holes. <laughs> so for there to be somebody else out there that loves Anne Boleyn and her story and her legacy as wholeheartedly as you do. I'm so jazzed. And I, Lisa, if you end up listening to this, I would love a signed copy. Um, I'll have to mail you my book so you can sign it and then send it back to me or something. We'll work it out. Oh, I'm so excited. I love them already. To get back to Anne's real life, in many cases of trials in general, the accused was not informed of their crimes until they were on trial. And so they didn't even know how to defend themselves. Anne was no different here and asked several times what her crimes were, even going so far as when she was arrested, falling on the ground at the front of the Tower of London, and asking what had happened to her sweet brother, and what she was being punished for. Still confused while waiting for her execution, she sent this letter to the scoundrel. Actually, I think she was just waiting. I don't know if it was for her trial, or for the decree, or what, but still confused while waiting, she sent this letter to the scoundrel king. Do you want to read this? Oh, yes, absolutely. Give me this letter. Sir, your grace's displeasure and my imprisonment are things so strange unto me. As what to write or what to excuse, I am altogether ignorant. Whereas you send unto me, willing to confess the truth, and so obtain your favor, by such an one, whom you know to be my ancient professed enemy, I no sooner have received this message by him than I rightly conceived your meaning, and... If, as you say, confessing a truth indeed may procure my safety, I shall with all willingness and duty perform your demand. But let not your grace ever imagine that your poor wife will ever be brought to acknowledge a fault, where not so much as a thought thereof proceeded. And to speak a truth, never has a prince had a wife more loyal in all duty and in all true affection than you have ever found in Amberlin, with which name and place I could willingly have contented myself. If God and your grace's pleasure has been so pleased, neither did I at any time so far forget myself in exaltation or received queenship, but that I always looked for such an alteration as I now find. For the ground of my preferment being on no surer foundation than your grace's fancy, the least alteration I knew fit and sufficient to draw that fancy to some other object. You have chosen me from a low estate to be your queen and companion, far beyond my desert or desire. If then you found me worthy of such honor, good your grace, let not any light fancy or bad counsel of mine enemies withdraw your princely favor from me. Neither let that stain, that unworthy stain of disloyal heart toward your good grace, ever cast so foul a blot on your most dutiful wife and the infant princess your daughter. Try me, good king, but let me have a lawful trial, and let not my sworn enemies sit as my accusers and judges. Yeah, let me receive an open trial, for my truth shall fear no open flame. Then shall you see either my innocence cleared, your suspicion and conscience satisfied, the ignominy and slander of the world stopped, 
or my guilt openly declared, so that whatsoever God you may determine of me, your grace may be freed of an open censure, and mine offense being so lawfully proved, your grace is at a liberty, both before God and man, not only to execute worthy punishment on me as an unlawful wife, but also to follow your affection, already settled on that party, for whose sake I am now as I am, whose name I could some good, while since having pointed unto, your grace being not ignorant of my suspicion therein. But if you have already determined of me, that not only my death, but an infamous slander must bring you the enjoying of your desired happiness, then I desire of God that he will pardon your great sin therein, and likewise mine enemies, the instruments thereof, and that he will not call you to a strict account of your unprincely and cruel usage of me, at his general judgment seat, where both you and myself must shortly appear, and in whose judgment I doubt not, whatsoever the world may think of me, mine innocence shall be openly known and sufficiently cleared. My last and only request shall be that myself may only bear the burden of your grace's displeasure, and that it may not touch the innocent souls of the poor gentleman, who, as I understand, are likewise in straight imprisonment for my sake. If ever I found favour in your sight, if ever the name of Anne Boleyn hath been pleasing in your ears, then let me obtain this request, and I will so leave to trouble your grace any further, with mine earnest prayers to the Trinity to have your grace in his good keeping, and to direct you in all your actions. From my doleful prison in the tower, this 6th of May, your most loyal and ever faithful wife, Anne Boleyn. So more or less what that letter says is Anne doesn't understand why she's being imprisoned. Even though she's innocent, she will say that she is guilty if it means keeping her and her daughter safe, that she knows who he's doing this for. She also expressed that she was suspicious of the king for being with Jane already and that she has already told him that she knew what was going on. And that it's obvious that everything that she's doing is to get with Jane instead of her. And if he must kill her and fully slander her name, she will take that burden and pray for his immortal soul. When you'd initially like mentioned that you were finding all this information about Anne Boleyn and you told me that it was going to get really mm-hmm. sad, I didn't expect it to take such a fucking turn. Yeah. Like in this, in this letter as I was reading it. Uh, in a horrible accent, I'm sure. So I, I apologize. Okay. <laughs> oh, thank you. I I try, but I'm not. I, it's it's all picked up from TV. <laughs> so she's basically being crucified yeah. for nothing short of no head Henry's lust, and that she recognizes that she's done nothing wrong. And for a lot of people that would be in her position, they would think that they're innocent, and she knows her innocence. Yep, because she's done fucking nothing wrong. And so all that she's basically pleading for is the safety of her baby. Like if she has Mm -hmm. to be executed just to spare her baby and to let those people go and like to, to drop those allegations against those other people so, so that they don't have to suffer. Exactly. And so she's even to the end, she is actively trying to care for everyone but herself and going, I don't understand. I don't get why this is such a, thing but like if it has to be a thing then just make it a thing at me and no one else i mean i'm sure that by the time Anne Boleyn and uh king henry's lives like romantically intersected she had known that he was a a pretty cruel man 
And that mm. if he thought that she was guilty of something, then she would almost certainly die. So even to the end, she was fine with going down. Mm-hmm. And that's, it's not a silent dignity because I'm sure that she didn't fucking go down without fighting. Mm-hmm. But she had accepted it. She had definitely accepted her fate. And in that letter, I mean, she just recognizes, like, I'm probably going to get executed. In exchange for my execution, let these people go and spare my baby. Exactly. It's so sad. Um, yeah, oh, when it gets sadder. No. <laughs> I'm going to, like, go I'm to so bed sorry. crying tonight. <laughs> there are sources that say that her own father was on the jury that tried Anne and George. But that's actually not true. However, he was on the jury of the other men accused of adultery with her, but could not go against the king. And even if he did, there was already a guilty verdict for one, so it wouldn't prevent the deaths of his children anyway. And to go against the king meant condemning his last child and the rest of his family to death as well. So he did exactly what he could do to protect George and Anne, which was nothing. He died three years later in bed, very probably brokenhearted about children and being forced to accept that a king he loved and helped build up would do such a thing to his children. I mean, the guilt is a father because, I mean, I don't have any kids myself. Um, I have a, a niece, a nephew, and my cat. But I mean, I'm sure that like you could speak to it being a parent that like all you want to do, uh, whether you're, you know, an average Joe or you're a, a, a person of power is you want to protect your children because at the end of the day, like they're just, they're your kids. Mm-hmm. And so wanting nothing but to protect your children and then saying, Oh, it's okay because we have this, this powerful figure that we can believe in that I would like to think has our best intentions at heart. And then that person completely betraying you, essentially sending your daughter to die. Mm-hmm. And son. Yeah. And son, you're, you're both of your fucking babies just, to go off and be executed like and it's i i don't blame him because they're like what what else could he have done Mm -hmm. so another thing too is that um lady rochefort jane bullen not to be confused with jane gray um or jane seymour jane gray is a whole other topic and also a part of this particular event series but not the jane we were talking about earlier jane seymour is the one that henry is banging so um jane bullen lady rochefort was also made to answer questions about everything going on. And some of the things that she said were taken out of context and used against both George and Anne. But there are no sources that claim that Jane herself was vindictive or malicious in her depictions at trial. Um, But she was ultimately made the villain and blamed for the deaths of George and Anne, even going so far as to claim her as the person who said that her and George were banging. Um, so that's his wife. And she was so heavily villainized for no reason other than we needed a scapegoat. So on May 15th, Anne was convicted of high treason, plotting to kill the scoundrel king, adultery, and incest, with a splash of accusing her to be a witch thrown in. The typical punishment for Anne's sentence was actually to be burnt at the stake but the scoundrel obviously felt guilty because he lessened her sentence to just beheading and went so far- I mean, he felt guilty because she didn't fucking do anything wrong. Exactly. You went through all of this shit just to get your dick wet. Exactly. But, yeah, it's pretty wild. But yeah, he also went so far as to hire the best executioner he had access to and had a special sword used for the execution as well, making it a far less painful death. 
The interesting thing here is that it was a French executioner, so it would have taken at least a month to get him from France to England, which means that he would have hired this executioner and already been prepared to kill Anne even before she was convicted. Holy shit. And barely before she was even arrested. So you had mentioned uh, just very briefly uh, when we talked about Anne Boleyn before. So the the classic, when you think of somebody getting beheaded, most people think of a guillotine or they think of, you know, laying down with your head on a chopping block. Mm -hmm. But you'd mentioned something very different about this style of of execution. Mm -hmm. And when you mentioned it, it literally made my heart drop straight out of my asshole. Yeah, and I will get there. Um, There is some really interesting facts about this particular execution that'll make your heart drop even harder. Like, <laughs> It's going to like leave a dent in my fucking floor. <laughs> yeah, but we're... Oh, my stomach's a knot. Yeah. So the execution was scheduled for the 17th, but it was delayed mm-hmm. twice for a few different reasons. The first was getting the sword and executioner there to do it. And the second was to hopefully mitigate the crowd, which naturally didn't work and encouraged even more people to come watch, though it was technically a private execution. But the gates of the Tower of London were open to the public so people could just kind of mosey on in and they waited around until they could watch her execution. Jesus Christ. On that day, on the 17th, the accused men were actually executed, including her beloved brother. And they were all beheaded for their alleged crimes, which Anne was likely have made or made to have watched. So all of these men that were uh, accused of infidelity with Anne, they were also executed. Yes. Were they executed in the same manner that Anne would be executed? Um, they were. They were executed. They were beheaded in the English style, from what I understand. So they were. They were executed with the chopping block. Oh my god, my organs yeah. hurt. <laughs> Yeah, and she was very like oh, that's made so to watch all of them executed in front of her. So she would have seen her own brother killed because oh her husband wanted so badly to be rid of her. I mean, they unsurprisingly they saved her for last because she was like the main event. It sounds really fucked, but mm-hmm. she was she was the main event was having the now former <laughs> Queen of England being executed. Like I said, a big part of that was because they were trying to mitigate the crowd. They were also trying to keep anyone foreign from the country from being a part of the crowd because they didn't want news to travel of how they had disposed of their queen because that Mm -hmm. could lead to some very bad shit with other countries. They were ordered to mitigate the crowd in any way possible and um, they just believed that if the crowd got bored, they'd go home. Oh, so they thought that they would, you know, announce, hey, we're going to be doing the executions on Wednesday. And it's just, what, four or five of the same style execution. And they're like, eh, this is kind of lame. We're just going to go, like, get a yield corn dog down the road and just, you know, abandon this uh, event, this spectacle. But that, I'm assuming, didn't happen that way. Yeah, no, it, the crowd got larger and larger the longer they waited. So they eventually were like, okay, we're just going to do it. Oh, God. So during the time that Anne was scheduled to be executed and the time that she actually was executed she had a Mm -hmm. lot of time to just experience grief for her own life and so william kingston reported that Anne seemed very happy and ready to be done with life and one of his letters actually read would you like to read this one uh i might cry but i will read it (laughs) okay i mean i can read it too uh you can read it I'll, i'll let you read this one 
This morning she sent for me, that I might be with her at such time as she received the good Lord, to the intent I should hear her speak as touching her innocency way to be clear. And in the writing of this she sent for me, and at my coming she said, Mr. Kingston, I hear I shall not die afore noon, and I am very sorry therefore, for I thought to be dead by this time and pass my pain. I told her it should be no pain, it was so little. And then she said, I heard say the executioner was very good, and I have a little neck. And then she put her hands about it, laughing heartily. I've seen many men and also women executed, and that they have been in great sorrow, and to my knowledge, this lady has much joy in death. So she's, you know, sitting there, she's joking about how she's going to be killed, and it's like going to be an easy kill because she's got this thin neck that a sword would swipe right through, and... She's just vibing to her own death at this point. So uh, I think at this point we should clarify that Anne Boleyn wasn't. Uh, wow, I'm I'm reeling over that letter because that's <laughs> that made my entire body just fucking just go oof. Um, so Anne Boleyn's execution. Um, this is one of the few things that I that I knew about this case. Mm-hmm. Um, she was executed sitting up. Uh, so they basically, and the way that I worded it before was not tasteful when I, like, kind of cracked a joke at Pippin. Um, <laughs> it was basically, like, the executioner holding a, the sword like a baseball bat. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm only making this joke now because I'm trying to pull myself back up because it really <laughs> breaks my heart that she was such an amazing woman and she got treated like absolute fucking mud. Yeah. Um, but no, the executioner would have held the sword like a baseball bat and, uh, swung it and, uh, decapitated her. Mm-hmm. So, oh, um, Pippin, this, <laughs> this makes me so sad. Yeah, I, t- I apologized in advance before I thought that I was going to be okay, <laughs> and then we started actually talking about it, and... Mm-hmm. So... During this time, she also um, is credited with writing a poem, though it could have been her brother that wrote it. The poem is titled, Oh Death, Rock Me Asleep. It is the song that you heard in the very beginning of this episode. She wrote it during these few days, lamenting her own life and its tragic end, with a lute being played behind the words. And this is the part that's oh making me want to cry, because the lute was her favorite instrument to play. Um... I couldn't find any information on this part, but I kind of hope that she wrote it as a song in the first place and is, like, happy that it was transposed into one. Oh, I definitely think that she's happy about it. She, I'm, I'm trying to, like, kind of, like, filibuster while, while you compose yourself because I can tell that you're getting upset. <laughs> I think that we can all tell that Anne Boleyn, and I mean, I've already kind of, like, sucked her dick a little bit. Um, she was, <laughs> she was an absolute fucking force to be reckoned with. And she she went down with such incredible dignity. Oh, it's it gets. Oh man, I'm not ready. (laughs) I I literally have like a roll of toilet paper ready to stop up my fucking tears. So on May 19th, 1536, two days after her dear brother, she herself was to be beheaded for her alleged crimes. Shortly before dawn that day, she called Kingston to hear mass with her and swore over and over again on her eternal salvation of her soul and upon the holy sacraments of communion that she had never been unfaithful to her husband 
Many people believe that this was true as she was a devout believer and would never have risked damning her soul before death by lying. On the morning of her death, she was taken to a scaffold covered in black cloth believed to be velvet, a courtesy given to many a royal on their execution day. She walked herself and was described as having a devilish spirit and looked as gay or happy as if she was not going to die. There are accounts of her looking behind her the entire walk to the scaffold, possibly a sign of her hoping that the king would in fact show her mercy and simply divorce her instead of killing her. When she made it to the scaffold, the executioner is said to have knelt before her to beg her for forgiveness. She granted him forgiveness in his native tongue, French, and asked that he not perform his duty right away, and to instead let her make a final speech, one that is quoted twice in separate historic documents nearly identically, so we can assume these to be her actual words. So she looked over the crowd and she said, Good Christian people, I am come hither to die, for according to the law, and by the law that I am judged to die, and therefore I will speak nothing against it. I am come hither to accuse no man, nor to speak anything of that, whereof I am accused and condemned to die, but I pray God save the king and send him long to reign over you. For a gentler nor a more merciful prince was there ever, and to me he was ever a good, gentle, and sovereign lord. And if any person will meddle of my cause, I require them to judge the best. And thus I take my leave of the world and of you all, and I heartily desire you all pray for me. O Lord, have mercy on me, and to God I commend my soul. <laughs> she screams for my tissues. I didn't think I was uh, going to yeah, cry she's, over her. She's tearworthy. Um, <laughs> I would Jesus. like to point out that Anne herself did ask us to judge the best of King Henry. But I think we're doing so. <laughs> I think this is the best he deserves. Oh, man. Oh, my God. Now, whether she was being nice to the scoundrel king because she truly <sighs> believed him to be good or because she was trying to protect her daughter Elizabeth, we may never know. But we do know that her speech left a mark on those in attendance and all who witnessed her tragic downfall. She left a fucking mark on me. I'm over here like... <laughs> sucking the tears back up into my face <laughs> i <laughs> i don't think i've ever actually cried while recording <laughs> oh my god i i knew nothing about her i knew that she was executed and that was it <laughs> i i made wow. you fall in love with this woman and then ripped her from your hands oh, Jesus. i'm so sorry for this and it's the fact that no, don't even, don't even be, it's, because I could see her, because she's such a fucking strong person, and for her to be like, I forgive you for having to do your job, but I'm also going to tell you all that, like, King Henry, he was merciful to me, even though he wasn't, she was just kind of sucking his dick, and he fucking knew it. Mm -hmm. So for her to stand up there as his former wife and be like, he was good to me, he was a good man. Mm-hmm. It's like her way of saying get fucked. Like she just she went out in the most Amboin fucking way. Oh, it's it gets more. Oh god. <laughs> <laughs> so Anne was accompanied by two female attendants who had been assigned to care for her during her imprisonment and execution. According to all accounts, the attendants assigned to her were specifically her enemies, possibly to prevent them from helping her to try to escape. Um, but more likely because 
Henry is a petty, vindictive asshole. Anyway, throughout the event of her execution, they were inconsolable and wept so much that they were unable to attend to Anne the way that they were meant to, instead leaving her, her to prepare herself for the execution, which she told them to let her do. To be an enemy of Anne and still love her so much after barely knowing her closely for a month is such a remarkable testament to her character already. But there is a very small argument to be made that the king relented and allowed her loved ones allowed her to have loved ones in the final moments, but there is no record of it whatsoever. It's also even less likely, but possible still, that William betrayed an order of the king and allowed her to be cared for by loved ones themselves. But that would have likely ended in his downfall. So no matter which scenario, however probable, both show how easy to love that she was, and even while straight up trying to murder her. I mean, she had such a, a tremendous unconditional love for every single person that she fucking met. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's it's hard to hate somebody that has so much love for total fucking strangers. And for life and for like, the world and for everything. Yeah. She she cared about about nobles, about peasants, about the middle class, the homeless, the impoverished, giving people money. She cared about ev- everything. She cared about everything and everyone. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure that, like, Henry definitely sent those women to go take care of her because he was a fucking asshole for no reason again. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure that with them understanding what an incredible reach she had, the impact that she had on her people, mm-hmm. they were like, this is so fucking wrong. And they knew that they were sending an innocent woman to die. Mm-hmm, absolutely. So to prepare herself for execution, she wore an absolutely extravagant gown. Um, and she first removed her ermine mantle or a weasel fur cloak, her necklace and her hood. These were incredibly stylish and specifically English pieces. They were likely meant to show her status to the end, considering that her known preferred style was much more French. Next, she removed her damask gown, or her decorated outer dress, to reveal her kirtle, the innermost part of her dress, before you got to undergarments. Um, The one that she chose for this occasion was a scarlet red, a color generally dedicated to martyrs. Next, she tucked her hair into her cap and knelt on the scaffold. Like we mentioned before, her execution was of the style of the French, in that there was no chopping block. Instead, she said a brief farewell to her ladies sat on her knees with her head up, possibly blindfolded, though I like to think a woman like Anne would have wanted to see as much of the world as she could before her death, repeated a prayer while waiting for her fate. Jesu, receive my soul. O Lord God, have pity on my soul. It's said that in this moment, the multitude of people watching dropped to their knees as well and began to pray with her. Some cried deeply in her final moment. This is something that is not ever reported again to have happened in any execution in the air. Finally, after taking off his boots, a mercy meant to prevent her from hearing when the execution was going to happen, the executioner took one swing clean through and her execution was completed. Some say that even after her death, her lips continued to move in silent prayer for some time afterward. And considering the gruesome facts about beheadings, this one's actually entirely possible. Holy shit. Mm -hmm. I told you it gets more. (laughs) I... I know that he just fucking cried, but <laughs> I am like 
tearing up like an absolute bitch baby. <laughs> I told you. Holy shit, Pippin. Like- you, when I was like, you're gonna do a pilot, you're like, hold my fucking beer, but get out the tissue. <laughs> I literally called you crying, and I was like, Kate, I'm so sorry. Oh I love you so much. I'm sorry for what I've done to you. And you were like, I'm gonna be fine. then she was not fine (laughs) i'm not one to really care about history because it's in the past i mean there are some things that are obviously very important Mm -hmm. but i've never fucking cared this much about an execution (laughs) um holy fucking shit yeah so like i said before Anne had an incredible impact on those around her so much so that several things did actually happen after her death first the ladies waiting on her, the ones that were meant to be her enemies, risked the scoundrel's wrath to ensure her body was at least cared for as much as they could. They refused to let any man touch her body. They tucked her body into an arrow case that was repurposed into a makeshift coffin because that's all that was given for them to use. And they buried her body in an unmarked grave at the nearby chapel of St. Peter ad Vincula next to her brother. Next, Cranmer, one of the people tasked with finding her guilty and the person who ultimately declared Anne's marriage void, though originally a friend of hers, was reported to have broken down in tears after telling another court member, she who has been the queen of England on earth will become a queen in heaven. And of course, the public, who had largely up until this point hated Anne, started to see her as a tragic tale and very probably innocent, though it would have been treason to admit it at the time. Now, even before her ghost sightings, her story actually doesn't end here. A few more things happen that are really important in discussing her hauntings. No head scoundrel Henry. <laughs> Thank you, because that just <laughs> that just helped to evaporate the tears a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Was finished with her. He actually tried to erase her from history. We don't have many depictions of her in portraits, as he had as many of them destroyed as possible after her execution and the ones that are surviving may possibly have been elizabeth's attempt at paying homage to her by having portraits of other women jane seymour included credited as anne to a point where we don't have a great understanding of what she looked like just a few guesses um henry also very probably hired propagandists to remind everyone that she was in fact the one at fault and probably even a witch who used magic to entice him into her clutches though it's possible that the propagandists were working on their own too. One such propagandist, the one I just discussed earlier, and I was like, we'll get to him, who was not likely working for Henry, as Henry was probably dead by then, was Nicholas Sanders, who blamed Anne for Henry's leaving the Catholic Church, which is true, to be fair, but wrote about her in the most interesting way. And all of it is very likely untrue because he probably wasn't even alive when she was executed. So he had no idea what she looked like. But like, okay, I just I just got to share this with you, okay? Anne Boleyn was rather tall of stature, with black hair and an oval face of sallow complexion, as if troubled with jaundice. It is said she had a projecting tooth under her upper lip and on her right hand, six fingers. There was a large wen under her chin and therefore, to hide its ugliness, she wore a high dress covering her throat. She was handsome to look at with a pretty mouth. Okay, so here's the thing, right? (laughs) So they're like, oh, she had an oval face, as if that's supposed to be a bad thing. I have the fucking roundest fucking baby face, and Pippin can fucking attest to this, that I look like I'm approximately 16 years old. 
Oh, she has she has dark hair. No, she has gorgeous fucking hair because all the fucking pictures that I've fucking seen of her. Yeah, they might just be propaganda. She's a fucking gorgeous fucking human being. She has six fingers on one hand. You know what? That's fine because she's gonna shove all of them up your fucking ass and play you like a fucking ventriloquist <laughs> dummy, you bitch. <laughs> Anne Boleyn don't fuck around. You know what? Yeah, she'd use all six of the fucking fingers on one of her hands to do fucking archery. And to do fucking falconry. And to fucking read books. Which I know is a hard fucking concept for all you narrow-minded fucking assholes. But you know what? It's not the fucking Dark Ages. I mean, it was back then. But everybody was just so fucking mad that Anne Boleyn was so goddamn fucking smart. And that she had more potential than they would ever fucking have. Records on this vary. But according to most sources that I could find, he did try to prevent Elizabeth from ever being his heir. Though joke's on him. Everyone else in his family fucking died for a, multi- for a multitude of different reasons. And Elizabeth not only went on to be queen, but ruled for almost 45 years and became one of the most beloved monarchs in history. And not only that, she is hands down the most beloved English queen in history. So take that scoundrel, man. You know what? It's almost like when you're a massive fucking piece of living ass fucking dog shit. And you fucking get your amazing fucking wife slaughtered for no reason. Karma comes back and bites you in the ass and then burns your fucking family tree to the ground. But you know what? The one thing that it couldn't fucking kill is her amazing fucking daughter that I'm sure took after her mother because they were both Mm -hmm. bad bitches. What you just said is so funny because that's actually what people believed at the time too. So um, a fun little history of what happened. Henry died. And then his son, the one Jane Seymour um, had and then died soon after, was the next ruler. He lived for seven years. And from what I remember, I haven't looked really heavily into him, but I'm pretty sure he was executed because he was trying to play so many sides at once and failed epically. Um, So when he was executed, the next person to be put into power was actually fifth in line for the throne. But she was a Protestant. So that was the person that the theocracy wanted in power because that would have kept them in power her name was lady jane gray and she was queen for all of nine days she was 17 when she was made queen after nine days mary had gained enough support in those nine days that she stormed the castle and took her rightful place on the throne and then a year later so at 18 executed lady jane gray uh for being a protestant all of that to say after mary died Queen Elizabeth was the fourth person to take the throne after Henry died. Okay. And everybody was like, everybody keeps dying because Queen Elizabeth is supposed to be the king or the queen because the king did and dirty. And this is his punishment. So legitimately the entirety of history believes the same thing you did. um, Except that it's flavored with the whole God did it sentiment. But anyway, so when Queen Elizabeth came into power, she did actually venerate or give the title of martyr to Anne out of respect for her contributions to the growth of the country. Even with that having happened, her gravesite was disturbed so many times as it was a common resting place for others that suffered her fate during the next several hundred years. But especially during the rule of Henry and Catherine's daughter, Mary, Princess Mary came into power for a short time, was so angry about losing her princess title that she violently fought to restore England's position in the Catholic Church by executing so many hundreds of Protestants, including her teen niece, leading her to be given the title of Bloody Mary. 
Holy yeah. fucking shit. Yes, the one attributed to the ghost story about saying it enough times being able oh, to call ew. the spirit forth. No, ew, I don't like that because it's 6 a.m. and I have to go to bed after this recording, Pippin. <laughs> Here's an interesting fact about her. She had two phantom pregnancies and was not able to produce an heir. She very likely had ovarian cancer, which is how she died, uh, which is why Elizabeth made it to the throne in the first place. But I have a theory that the reason that part of that chant is I have your baby is because of her phantom pregnancies and her trying so hard for an heir and never being able to produce one. Oh, shit. So we did get to some ghost story um, with this. but <laughs> So in 1750, Anne did get her own little afterlife roommate in Hannah Beresford. And by that, I mean that Anne's whole ass remains were straight up moved to the side to make room for Hannah. Over a hundred years later, in 1876, a full restoration of the, ch the Chapel of St. Peter ad Vincula began, and the area where Anne was buried was full of sinkholes. So in order to replace the pavement, they had to excavate the ground around it. This is how Anne's remains were finally found, along with many others. Although George's were not found, but one of the people on the project mused that it might have been because his body lay more to the north or left of where they'd excavated. And he's doomed to be there forever because they didn't need to dig that far to place the pavement. So they never actually found his body. Yeah. Okay. So what do they do with Anne's body? I got you. Don't worry. The entire gravesite was desecrated so many times that many of the remains they found were already destroyed. But oh. they carefully collected all that could be kept and had the body separated. The concrete was relayed and the remains were studied. They did find a majority of Anne's remains. And after they finished their research five months later, on Friday the 13th of April 1877 at midday. No fucking way. Mm -hmm, the remains of each of the bodies were placed in separate, specially made caskets. And their names were finally marked, as well as the dates they died on the tile of the church floor. Where they were laid was also marked in records. So we have several different records of where her body now rests. So Anne finally got her honorable burial over 300 years after her death. Jesus Christ, I don't even know what to say to that. So she was just sitting in this unmarked grave for hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. And they kept digging her up and kind of scooting her to the side and throwing more bodies in. Yep. I think it was a grand total of 15 bodies were buried in that area. But I don't remember exactly how many. And those were the royals executed for things like being a Protestant. Um, that doesn't even discuss the amount of um, commoners who were burned at the stake for not following Catholicism and so on, so on and so forth. Now, remember that every couple of years, they went back and forth between you're a Catholic, you're a Protestant, you're a Catholic, you're a Protestant. So and it was just this giant seesaw, and no matter which way the sea was sawing, people were getting executed. Exactly. Holy shit. That is all that I have for the life and death of Anne Boleyn. It's taken quite a bit to cover all of this. So what we're going to do is do a second episode where we discuss the afterlife of Anne Boleyn on all of her different sightings as a ghost. And she's a super interesting specter because of how well known she is and how many people go expecting and hoping to see her and like so many different stories that I'm so jazzed to really get into that with you. And I think what I'm going to do on the next episode is I'm going to start the episode like I did with the song here. I'm going to start the episode with the 1920s short story, the first ever recording of the tale of the girl with the ribbon around her neck. 
because that was inspired by Anne Boleyn. Holy shit. I think I remember you mentioning that in uh, mm-hmm. our last episode, the holiday collab, which if you didn't listen to, definitely check it out because that was, I don't know about you, but I had so much fucking fun with that. Yeah. Oh, I was laughing so hard the whole time. Oh my God. That was probably one of my favorite things that I've ever listened to. Uh, if I may say so myself. God, there was a bit that lasted like a full 10 minutes. It was so <laughs> worth it. It had the best payout I've ever experienced. <laughs> you, I mean, I could uh, explain it, but y'all are just going to have to listen to it yourself. But my jaw probably uh, hit my desk about 75 fucking times in this episode. I wasn't expecting all of this. Yeah, the more and more that I researched her, because I knew the basics about her. I knew that she had a major part in the reform of England, but I did not know how deep it went and how big of an influence she was and how utterly failed she was by the people around her. And it broke my heart the more information I got and the more I read up on her. And I'm going to read these letters because I haven't gotten through all of them. And I'm probably going to cry more again. <laughs> I mean, I, I didn't know anything about Anne Boleyn. And throughout this entire episode, I was like, oh, my God, like, she sounds wonderful and I love her. And then while you were, uh, like, talking about, you know, her and Henry's marriage, it hit me again that, you know, there is no happy ending for Anne Boleyn. Mm-hmm. I mean, one could argue that it it doesn't have, it has, like, a slight silver lining in that, you know, she comes back and she's still, you know, in in a sense, she's still watching over people. Mm-hmm. I don't even have like something clever to say. Yeah. So I guess that was Anne Boleyn. <laughs> yeah. I think the part that amazes me most about her is how utterly resigned to death she was without ever losing her love for life. She, like, even when she was literally staring death in the face, she never stopped being herself. Exactly. And she just, that piece that you can read in her own, like, end, the way that she was so composed, the way that she was so prepared, I can only hope that I am half as composed whenever my time comes, you know? Mm-hmm. That I am half as prepared and accepting of my fate. She was an utterly amazing woman, and I'm so glad to have gotten to do this research on her. Yeah. And I think, like, that's that's the beauty of of life, really, is that you don't know how long you have. And uh, I think I briefly mentioned this way back in the first episode um, about why I wanted to do the podcast. And if I didn't, then I'm just going to mention it now. There's such a bad stigma around death, not not dying specifically, but not knowing what comes after. You can only be so ready for yourself. And a big part of doing this show is, yeah, death scares everybody. Um, we're afraid of the unknown. We don't know what's going to happen to us. And being able to to look at examples like Anne Boleyn and her haunting and what she would go on to do in the afterlife, it it brings you a, lo- a little bit of, of solace in knowing that this isn't the end for people. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also, it kind of proves that there there is more out there. Like, there is no way that human existence stops when your heart does. Mm-hmm. But that's that's my awful rambling. You can cut it if you want to. You can leave it if you want to. <laughs> I feel that. I think we're 
I think we're also just so like emotionally drained. I'm very drained. Like had our whole hearts broken while while going through this tale. I don't know. Listening to it, it's it's like I watched an entire fucking movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's honestly, um, I think people are really going to fucking enjoy this episode or this. I really hope so. These episodes, because it's going to be a two-parter. So yeah, this was um, this was the life and death of Anne Boleyn. Um, to sum it up, Anne was a badass bitch, and Henry was a piece of shit. Um, Hallelujah! No head Henry never fucking deserved it. He uh should go fuck himself. Or hopefully yeah. did just fuck himself with a pair of tweezers. Because everybody knows that King Henry had the world's smallest peener. Which Anne herself can testament to. Testify to. Can attest. Can attest to. There we go. Can attest to that he had the world's smallest peener. But yeah, so I really hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I'm really excited to get to her actual hauntings next episode. I know that this was a little bit of a break from the norm and that it was pretty much a giant history lesson instead of actually discussing some of the cooler, creepy stuff. But if this is the kind of thing that you guys want to see more of, I've got a hundred different people that I could talk about like this. So speaking of people to talk about, uh, remember, if you guys, gals, non-binary pals, if you're looking for some badass historical fiction, uh, you need to check out Lisa Bryan and we'll put their information in the show notes. Uh, I'm definitely going to check out their work because I'm super interested. I Oh, I'm so excited for their work. Yeah, me too. I'm pretty jazzed. Um, for those of you not willing to check the show notes, um, their name is spelled L-I-S-S-A-B-R-Y-A-N. This is weird because normally at the end of the podcast, uh, I just plug you. But uh, now that you're a co-host... Um, I guess we can just put all your information in the show notes. Uh, <laughs> we'll get your, your link tree and all of your, your little social medias. We'll, we'll slap it all together uh, for the people. Um, and also, in case you didn't see them, uh, Pippin did uh, some super duper adorable, phenomenal drawings for the holiday horror show, um, which we did together. It was our last collab. Uh, so if you want to check those out, they're going to be on Pippin's Twitter and the podcast Twitter. So you need to go look at them. I think my favorite is probably the Mari Lewid drawing. Um, and I think that one's really good. Yeah. And then yours was, was it Farmhand Farm Rupert? Rupert? Yeah. <laughs> Love them. Um, and like I mentioned, if you haven't listened to that collab, go listen to it because it's fucking hilarious. Uh, it's, I'd like to think, pretty educational. Um, it's a nice little break from all the regular spooky oogie stuff that we cover. It's probably um, the funniest I'll ever be in my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> it's all downhill from here, and I think that's safe to say for both of us. <laughs> Unlike Anne, we will not go with any sort of poise. <laughs> no, we've got no poise. We, we've we just got... What what do we have instead of poise, Pippin? Um, dick shoe cheese. <laughs> We've got dick shoe cheese. <laughs> we got dick chew, dick chew. We got dick shoe cheese. We've got dad jokes. We've got daddy jokes. We've got awful, snarky, nasty humor. Uh, we've got fart jokes, poop jokes, any kind of joke that you want. Uh, but you know what's not a joke <laughs> is you checking in on the next episode because we are out of here. We are out of here. 
Yeah, that's all for this episode. Stay spooky and stay the fuck away from Scoundrel King No Head Henry VIII. <laughs>